This is the I Read Comic Books podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. Joining me this week, a pair of Justice League members who I have no memory of, Paul Jaceley. Hello, humanoids. And Kara Shamborski. Hey. Today, we are here to talk about episode 305. We're talking about Final Crisis today. I just want to give you a heads up. It's a pretty big episode, all things considered. (laughs) Maybe the biggest episode I Read Comic Books has ever recorded, but before we get into any of that, and before Kara really regurgitates all the food she had for breakfast and lunch today... I got to shout out two things. For one, I want to say fuck yeah to the Comic Book Workers United Union for forming over at Image Comics. Has not been voluntarily recognized by Image, which is kind of shitty. That being said, I'm very excited to see that this union is forming. I think it's a great step forward for all comic book creators and all the people working in the comic book industry. And the other thing I want to shout out is our latest and greatest, maybe, uh, Patreon supporter. His name is Paul. Paul, welcome to Ivory Comic Books. I hope you enjoy everything that we offer over at the Patreon. I think you're going to have a really good time. We hope to see you over in the discord as well so all that being said we're here to talk about comic books so i gotta ask these two legally mandated questions which are how have you been how have comic books been let's start with you paul uh hey mike i've been doing all right um coming off a little bit of a cold uh but the sort of silver lining of that is that i spent a lot of time just hanging out at home reading comics this past weekend so i have a lot to talk about and i chose two books specifically that i thought would be fun to chat about here on the show uh, one is The Loneliness of the Long Distance Cartoonist by Adrian Tomenay. Mm. Uh, this came out last year, and I have to confess, Adrian Tomenay is one of those creators whose work I've always wanted to like more than I really do. Um, sure, sure. His his work, his line work, his cartooning is absolutely gorgeous. It's so precise and clean. Mm-hmm. It's so visually appealing, and I love the way his books look. If you don't, if you're not familiar with his work, he did Optic Nerve, which was self-published for a while and was eventually picked up by Drawn and Quarterly. Um, he did Summer Blonde, Killing and Dying, and this newest book. But there's something about a lot of his stories, his fictional work that feels emotionally hollow. It's like, it's like a great late '90s indie rom-com where it's like, sure, these people are very attractive. I like the way it's filmed, but there's no emotional sort of vibrancy to the story. It's just kind of there. You know what I mean? It's like a sure. Wes Anderson movie in some sense. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, there's like a flatness to it that you don't know how to really put your thumb on. I totally get that. Yeah. And, it, it, but I've tried to read his stuff because again, visually it's so much my style, but this book I really, really enjoyed because it was autobiographical. There was mm. an immediate hook to it. Uh, as the title suggests, it's about Tomine's experiences as a cartoonist, traveling to conventions, going to book signings, uh, doing media appearances. And the way it's presented is as a notebook. So the actual physical book that Jordan Quarterly put together, it looks like a hardcover, like moleskin journal. You know, it's got the little mm-hmm. ribbon for the the uh, um, bookmark. It's got the little elastic band to put around the side. It's it's the mm-hmm. hash marked uh, grid paper. And then Tomine's artwork is a little bit looser and sketchier, like it's his sketchbook. But What's great is that he doesn't, he's not afraid to show how many indignities he's suffered being a cartoonist, you know, from people <laughs> mispronouncing his last name to sure. people not, people confusing him for Dan Klaus, which happens more than once. Um, <laughs> um, him, him. I, I never would have drawn that together in my head, but as soon as you said it, I went, yeah, I told, that totally yeah, tracks. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, him going to book signings and no one showing up and all mm. the things that he's suffered as being a cartoonist, it's, absolutely hilarious until the final chapter, which gets deadly serious. And what I really like is that such a dramatic tonal shift that Tomine pulls off 
that he can only do by being brutally honest with his heart on his sleeve and not pulling any punches. Like it's really an incredible book, how much of his soul and his inner life and his inner uh, mind is willing to put on the page. And it, it made reminded me like how much I wanted that from his fictional work. You know what I mean? So mm. it's a tremendously well done comic. Uh, it's one of those things I'm reading it and I checked out from the library about halfway through the book. I thought I need to buy a copy of this. It's so lovely. Um, and what's also great is because it is about his, his experiences at comic book conventions, you can play spot the cartoonist in the background. So it's like, oh, I'm pretty sure that's Chris Ware. I'm pretty sure that guy in the background is Jim Rugg. I think that's John Byrne. You know, you're like playing like, because he's drawing people, he doesn't always name who they are in the background. So that's kind of fun game to play. Um, that's fun. You know, there is a this story about Frank Miller mispronouncing his last name at a convention. He gets nominated for Eisner. That's always good for a laugh riot. So right, right. <laughs> you 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 posted this, and I didn't even realize that it had come out because I was looking forward to whatever Tomine put out next because I yeah. I really liked his Killing and Dying. I thought that was actually okay. a pretty good book overall. Like some of the stories were hit or miss, but again, with an anthology series of stories, that's going to happen. Yeah. Um, but I didn't realize that this had come out, so I'm very excited to uh, put this on my Christmas wish list. <laughs> I will I will do everybody out there a service. Whoever shops for me, I'm just saying. This is a blanket statement i'm terrible to shop for as far as gifts and stuff and people are always like mike what comics can i get you and i'm like i don't want anybody to ever buy me a comic book <laughs> ever because i have a very specific s- set of comic books that i want uh yeah. but i can put this on that list and well, then maybe go. someone will buy it for me as a gift. <laughs> well santa claus I, I think santa claus buys gifts mike come on oh um, right right sorry santa, um, santa well claus then you know makes them excuse you Right. Like Santa will hires, then copy. He hires elves he'll infringe it. on the copyright in order to get me a copy of this book. I don't understand how that works. It's complicated. <laughs> okay. It's complicated. Okay. Long story short, it's a tremendously good comic. I've, I've, if you like Tomine's stuff, you're going to like this. If you're someone that's maybe like me on the fence about his work or have never read his stuff, this is a great place to start. It's one of the best things I've read this past year. Um, speaking of biographical comics published by Drawn and Quarterly, I also read Leonard Cohen. On a Wire. This is a new book. Just came out about two weeks ago by the uh, Quebecois cartoonist Philippe Girard, translated into English by Helga Dasher and Karen Houle. Um, It is, as the title suggests, a biography of the legendary Canadian poet and songwriter Leonard Cohen, who I guess at this point is best known for writing Zack Snyder's favorite song, Hallelujah. Um, No. (laughs) (laughs) No. Oh. But, but, okay. so you know what? <laughs> you say Zack Snyder, I say Shrek. Like that song right. was in the sure. Shrek soundtrack. Sure. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. I will just say, as an aside, the popularity of that song, the fact it has become so ubiquitous in pop culture, is hilarious to me. Because, like every other Leonard Cohen song, Hallelujah is, at its core, about being horny and Jewish. <laughs> so the fact you have a children's movie with that song in it, and every American Idol contestant sings it, is magical to me. Anyway. <laughs> Sublime. Uh, all that being said, um, yeah, like I said, this is a book about Leonard Cohen's life. It focuses on more than just that song, thankfully, which is it's not one of my favorite Leonard Cohen songs. But um, And what's, what I really like about this book is that it doesn't read like a straightforward biography. It's, it's poetic in a way, if that makes sense, as much as a comic can be poetic. Um, mm-hmm. It's it opens up with Leonard Cohen. He passed away actually six years ago, six years ago today, I believe, or five years ago today. It opens up with him lying on the floor after he fell out of bed, and it's his final moments 
he's remembering moments of his life. So you kind of get little snippets of his story as it grows up as a young boy, uh, learning to be a poet and then traveling around the world, becoming a musician, all the famous people he meets, all the famous women he uh, had uh, uh, good times with. Um, and uh, he lived a very full, adventurous life. And what's nice is that it doesn't glamorize anything. You know, it just sort of shows it matter-of-factly. And the, the cartooning style is very uh, simplistic, but in a way that is evocative. You know, there's a lot of quiet, somber moments in the book, a lot of moments of him reflecting on his, his life and his craft. It's very hard to illustrate someone writing a song, but somehow uh, Gerard's just cartooning of Leonard Cohen holding a guitar and just looking pensive kind of like tells you the inner workings of his mind as he's writing a song. And there's a few little um, asides in there that I didn't know about, you know, uh, songwriting, uh, how he wrote certain songs or inspiration for certain songs I, I wasn't aware of. I will say if you don't know much about Leonard Cohen, this might not be the best place to start since a lot of it depends on you having a background knowledge of his songs and his personal life. But sure. I think it's one of those books that if you do like Leonard Cohen or maybe only know him from Hallelujah, this would give you a new appreciation for just how long of a career he had and just what an influential character he was in the history of popular music. And um, it's a book I'm actually kind of looking forward to go back and rereading. I read it last night and I really enjoyed it, but I want to like sit down, put some Leonard Cohen records on my stir- on my turntable, sort of like let it unfold before me, kind of like let it be a companion to the music, which I think might be a good uh, way to look at it. So I really enjoyed it. Again, Leonard Cohen is someone that I don't listen to a lot of. and I, I have a handful of favorite songs, but this kind of makes me appreciate his, his personal life and his craft even more. All right. Very cool. I mean, I, 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 I don't think I would have ever picked this up, um, <laughs> but it sounds interesting. I mean, like, yeah. again, I, if you're, I'm not really, I don't really know much about Leonard Cohen, but it does sound like a cool book. Yeah. And the, and the art looks really interesting. I looked at a preview of it. It looks, it looks very solid. So, Interesting stuff, Paul. You're picking. You're you're going way out there with super indie stuff, man. Good for you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Don't make that sound judgy, Mike. Dang. Listen, I, all I'm saying is like I feel like I feel really basic. Like the last couple weeks I've been on the show where I've just been like Marvel, DC, Marvel, an image book. Like that's how <laughs> that's sure. as as crazy as I'm getting. So, um, thanks for thanks for making me you know, humble in me, Paul. Is all. <laughs> of course, Kara. What about you? How have you been? How have comic books been? Oh my god. Um. Well, it's it's finally uh, wintery wintery weather over here, so I am finally able to wear the six thousand sweatshirts I bought during the pandemic as an expression <laughs> of wanting to feel cozy and swaddled at all times. So, right, right. Um, you know, on a sartorial level, that's where I'm at. But um, comic book wise, I could not let go of our recent comics with t episode and Mm. wanted to continue the journey so Mm. i read seance tea party by raymena yi expecting it to be an adorable middle grade book about some kind of like ghostly tea party and cute animals and hijinks ensue and everything's like sweet and there's no conflict and whatever that is not this book (laughs) This book, hmm. made, like I talk all the time, like oh, like I, this book made me cry. I had so many feelings. I was sobbing alone in my bed to this book. <laughs> oh, no. It was really, it's just an emotional wrecking ball. It's um, the premise is this: this girl has um, what she says is going to be like a séance tea party um, with her, like I think it's like with her stuffed animals or something, and mm-hmm. then 
this ghost girl shows up. And so the, this girl who's um, in middle school realizes that there's a, a ghost girl who appears to be her age living in the attic. And so they become friends and it could just be like, oh, look, this girl has a ghost girlfriend. Isn't that cute? But instead, it's this exploration of what does it mean like to be a ghost who's trapped in this early adolescent age? And how do you spend your time when your like, human friend is at school? And what if you start like reconnecting with who you were when you were alive? And are there people still around who remember you? And I... It, mm, oh, oh mm. boy. Mm, mm -mm. like it's all about like friendship and the angst of feeling like people that you're friends with like no longer have the same interests that you do and how it's okay because you're always going to keep finding people who do love you for who you are and want to spend time with you and don't want you to change and I got a little bit of that going on in my life right now. So reading about mm -hmm. it was perhaps mm -hmm. too real. <laughs> right. Perhaps too real. Um, it's, it's a very well done book. I loved the, the illustrations. They edge on the whimsical, like I say it's a middle grade book. It kind of, it like looks like a more painterly style middle grade book, but the themes are definitely not just for kids. Like you can sure. hand this to an adult who has had a functional relationship in their lives and they'll be like, why would you do this to my heart? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, it was a uh, very beautiful love reading. Don't know if I'd read it again right away and maybe don't read it when you're feeling a lot of emotions already but it is a great read that is that is my recommendation of what what i read this week and uh yeah i'm uh i'm i'm still recovering from that one so. <laughs> <laughs> well that's okay yeah you know th this these tea party books have been on my my to read list i read the first one um, so I will, I, I'm pre, I appreciate the, the warning about this, this last one. Wait, wait, um, no, no. You're talking about tea dragon society. This is not is that this, this is, mm. oh, this is not okay. that thing. There are no magical okay. dragons here. Okay. I somehow got these <laughs> wires crossed. That would have been insane, right? If I would have been like, oh, look, the next entry in the no, tea dragon no, society. No, no, no. And it's like this, <laughs> not tea dragon society. This is okay. seance tea party. Okay, okay, okay. I'm glad we sorted that out. Uh, I, yes, I, we're, doing, we're fixing a lot of things today on the show. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, well, for me this week, I uh, i mean, I was out last week from the show because I was in Philadelphia, uh, and I was doing a really nerdy thing. I was playing Pokemon Go outside with people. There was like maybe like 2,000 people out at a park in Philadelphia. Um, and so I went down there to go do the Pokemon Go Safari event. Um, because I'm a huge nerd and it was a lot of fun. I walked around a bunch and uh, I brought fancy rain boots because it was supposed to rain all weekend and then we had perfect weather. So <laughs> I did manage to read some comics while I was traveling. I did manage to read some comics over the last couple weeks because obviously it's what I do with all of my time. Um, but, you know, so I did manage to sit down and read Time Before Time number six. This was by Declan Shelby, who was writing as well as doing the art, the pencils and the inks, colors by Chris O'Halloran, letters by Hassan Otsmani Elhow. And uh, yeah, this is a beautiful issue. 
Uh, if you normally read uh, Time Before Time, you'll know that Joe Palmer is typically the penciler on this book, but it looks like Declan Shelby stepped in to do this one shot um, that's about a one-off character from the story. And really, I don't really think I have the time or want to spoil the book for you to kind of explain the context of the book. But what I found to be really interesting about this issue is overall, I think Declan Shelby his writing tends to be really geared towards super bleak, crushingly hard-nosed to the ground real life stories. Even with something like a time-traveling story about a crime syndicate who like travels through time to get things and basically make their really bad timeline better by I don't know, it's 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 complicated. Um I think Shelby manages to find a way to just get you back to the basics of like, this is about a person struggling. All of his stories are about people struggling in ways that are, put them in scenarios where they have to do bad things in order to survive. And what was interesting about this specific issue is how worse things were for the characters compared to the regular story, compared to the other things, like every turn that all of the characters in this single issue make um, are just bad. And you feel that just depressing, overwhelming, like, is there a way to escape this? Is there a way to make things better? Are people making selfish choices because they have no choice or because they are only looking out for number one? Um, betrayals and left turns and really interesting just crimey crime stories it's something that i think i've said on the show before <laughs> i fucking love this time before time book and i think shelby totally nails it with this issue and i mean that isn't even to, to start with his art his art in this issue doesn't feel like his other books um i feel like this issue in particular had a very cinematic feel like it's probably some of the best work that he's ever put out uh you can tell there's a lot of passion you can tell there's a lot of really close collaboration with colors crystal halloran in this issue um because the color palette, while it it, it t- intentionally does not match the previous issues of Time Before Time, which was also done by O'Halloran, um, <laughs> it, it all was purposefully done to s- designate, like, this is a very different, drastic story um, that takes place in a different time. Um, and so compared to the rest of the storylines, which also take place in different times, but still have a bleakness to them, this one starts with, like, kind of like a lighthearted, almost optimism and ends in this dreary dread but still using that kind of lighthearted, poppy like color palette i found that to be mm-hmm. just incredible and again this is a wonderful issue do not pick it up on its own i do not recommend you do that that being said <laughs> go pick up the first trade then grab this issue you will not be disappointed i i, I highly recommend this series and i think like time before time declan shalvey and all the team that he's been working with have been doing a fantastic job uh making this book kick ass so um highly recommend that yeah, I go back and forth on this book because I'm reading it month to month and every issue I struggle to remember what happened, sure. which is not a complaint because I had the same thing with Paper Girls, which I loved. Mm-hmm. But at a certain point, I realize I need to read it in trade or just let mm-hmm. the issues pile up and read them in a go. So yeah, yeah. I haven't gotten I haven't gotten to this one yet, but uh, you're making me excited to, to finally read it. Yeah, I mean, as a one-off, honestly, all you need to know is like the handful of basics that I think the first arc gives you and this issue kicks okay. butt. Yeah. Um, Gotcha. Yeah, so I, I I was really really impressed. Like I I was floored by the end of this one. Like it's like it's like watching a good crime movie where at the end like no one's really the winner, even though somebody ended up on top. Um, and that's exactly what this issue was. So I I really enjoyed it. Um, the other thing I want to talk about really quick is I also read the Human Target number one, um, because I had to get on mm-hmm. the bandwagon. That like I said in you know earlier like. Just been reading a lot of big two books. That's apparently all I'm doing. Um, <laughs> but this had Greg Smallwood on it, so I had to pick it up. I love Greg Smallwood. I've loved Greg Smallwood since I saw him 
way back on Moon Knight and a ton of other stuff. Like everything that this guy touches is solid gold as far as I'm concerned. His art is some of the best in the industry, hands down. Um, so I wanted to see what this whole business is about, this human target thing. You do a quick Google search of human target and boy, oh boy, you see a lot of different things because uh, apparently this has been a thing for a long time and I have no idea what oh, the yeah. history is. Uh, but uh, that being said, this book was uh, it was a little tough to ramp up. Uh, Tom King, you know, say what you will about his his writing. You know, he's he's everyone's favorite and least favorite writer out there, and that's fine. <laughs> I tend to like his stuff a little bit, but just like his Batman book, I felt like this story kind of took its time actually getting to what the actual point was. That being said, uh, <laughs> the point of this book, the final like couple pages of this book kicked my kicked me in the face in like the best way sure. i really yeah. love this whodunit of the series if you haven't read it i don't want to spoil it but man oh man i i like a good whodunit and this is what this book is this uh, our main character the human target <laughs> he uh mm -hmm. gets poisoned in after working for lex luther and of course you'd think like oh lex luther did it he's the bad guy he's fucking evil right lex luther is bad just a quick aside, Kara Paul, Lex Luthor's a bad guy, right? And everyone knows that he's a bad guy, and he tells everyone that he's a bad guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, Mike, Mike, I'm just going to say, we live in a world with very rich dudes who a lot of people will defend, even though they're objectively sure. evil. Sure, sure, so It's not far of a stretch okay. to think Lex Luthor okay. would be the same thing. I was going to say, define bad. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right okay so all that being said you know so lex luther kind of obviously the like hey you did this you killed me you're gonna kill me and uh fortunately this guy he had he had drank some some coffee that was poisonous and uh yeah we kind of have to ask the question who did it and there's a really interesting twist at the end and if somebody doesn't read a lot of dc guys you know i say it all the time i just don't know and we're gonna get to it in the second half about how much i don't read dc um <laughs> This issue uh, was really interesting, and I, I'm very excited to explore all of the potential paths that this story is going to take, especially with the one page in this issue that gave us kind of a, a preview of what might be to come. Um, so yeah, premise is solid enough that I'm probably going to try number two at least. And I mean, come on, honestly, if you're going to put Greg Smallwood on a book, I can't fucking not pick it up. <laughs> so um, here we are. I, yeah, yeah. I was going to sit this one out until I saw the preview pages and like, well, King did it again. He hired an artist I cannot resist. Right. So, and it's to yeah. the point where, like, there's a there is a, a a fine line that Tom King rides that Mark Millar was on at one point. You know, yeah. Where you're like, yeah, yeah. God damn, he keeps getting people that are just stupendous on his work, and eventually you kind of read one or two of his books, you go, I don't think I can even follow some of these people into the dark. <laughs> mm. So, <laughs> that being said, Tom <laughs> King is not there yet i'm just I'm putting the yet on the end of that uh and yeah this Danny's, feels like a this feels like a book i'll trade weight on but we'll read eventually sure. yeah and you know it's probably going to be a fantastic trade weight honestly i think that this book is going to read like a dream when it's all collected but i think that it does work as a month-to-month -month book all things considered um so let's uh, let's move on. Let's talk about comics that are on the top of your pile. Comics are dropping on November tenth, two thousand twenty-one. But what's on the top of your pile? Uh, let's start with you, Paul. Uh, well, Mike, you know I'll, I'll say this as an aside, as a warning. This is coming out uh, this week on Wednesday. Um, based on the pile of comics I have waiting for me, I'm not going to get to it right away. But I'm excited to read it. So this is this is my pick for the week. When I get to it is up to be determined. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but it is. It's a new book from Image called What's the Furthest Place from Here? That's the first issue. This is by Tyler Boss, of course, who we all love, and Matthew Rosenberg. 
And at this point, I just have to say it's a Tyler Boss comic, right? And that's enough to justify <laughs> picking it. Right. Like if you've if you've read um if you've read Four Kids Walking to the Bank or uh uh Dead Dog's Bite, his most recent mm-hmm. book, I I can't resist his stuff. I love Tyler Boss's look, I love his aesthetic. This book apparently is a comic about a gang of teenagers navigating a post apocalyptic wasteland. Uh I'm there for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you are wondering, I'm buying the regular edition of this comic. I know that each issue, there's also going to be a special limited edition uh, of the issue that comes with a bonus seven inch. And you'd think that would be my thing, right? Yeah, I think they're you'd just doing that for the thing. first issue, just for the record. Oh, okay. Just the first one. Gotcha. They were running into supply no, chain intended. issues. <laughs> Uh, you know, with the with the vinyl in the first place. Sorry, continue, Paul. I didn't mean to interrupt. You. Right, because someone had to press five hundred thousand copies of Adele's records, so no indie bands could get any records mm-hmm. made for the next mm-hmm. year. Um, anyway, I'm not going to buy that. It's fifteen bucks. I just can't justify that. Although, if I see it in the store, that might change my mind. Okay. Uh, but I guess long story short, it's a sort of music themed post apocalyptic wasteland book by Tyler Boss. As Stan the Man said, "Enough said." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I did pre-order the fifteen dollar edition with the seven inch, so um, good. Maybe, good for maybe you, good I for will. You. you know, we we can share it or something like that. I'll send okay. you it. You can you can <laughs> play it on your record player because I fucking don't have one. <laughs> oh, oh my God. I, listen, I have. Okay, let me let me just be completely honest. I have a record player. It's just at my sister's house in Michigan that I will one day recollect from her. Um, one day you'll have it. Yeah, yeah. One day, you know, we'll sure. see. Uh, it's been That's in her okay. house like, for six years, but one day, <laughs> you know, what, like I bought, I bought a switch light case and I don't own a switch light yet. So it's like, sometimes you just have pieces of things that will someday be assembled. Yes. Yes. Sure. Uh, yeah. Kara, what about you? What's uh, on the top of your pile? Oh, top of my pile is the book spinning by Tilly Walden. And I'm not going to get into it because I don't want to know too much about it. All I know is that both Kates have recommended it. I and also recommend it. Yeah. I, you told me specifically <laughs> to drink wine while reading it because yeah. it will be sad. Yeah. So I don't, all I know about it is that you told me I would need alcohol to get through it mm-hmm. and that there's a ballerina on the cover. Mm-hmm. So with those two yeah. things, I know I'm setting myself up for another seance tea party, but you know what? It'll be fine. I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> Um, other top, top of my list is I, uh, I ordered the new collected edition of, uh, the fraction Aha Hawkeye, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, in, Mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. gleeful expectation of the Disney plus TV show, which is set in New York during Christmas time, Mm -hmm. my favorite time of the year to be in New York. So I'm like, you took the best comic the best superhero comic of the last 10 years i said it mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. and made it set in my favorite place at my favorite time <laughs> yeah give it to me immediately so i but i want to re- reread the comic before i watch it because i'm that person and Wait, it is we, a sublime comic book are we doing a uh Damn. live to tape patreon series for this is that what i'm hearing uh Ooh. week to week hawkeye episodes could you imagine <laughs> um I'm listening. I'm, 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 listening. I'm, I'm <laughs> sipping on that tea. Uh, more to come. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> listen, I'm not pushing that on anybody, but it sounds like we might be able to do it. 
let's talk. Have your people call mine. Yeah, well, you know, we'll get it out. We'll get it out all settled over email. Um, well, for me, sure. I guess before I jump into my top of my pile, uh, I'm going to shout out some Discord folks that are hanging out with us. Danny's pick this week is Venom number one. Uh, and Brian's pick is Life is Strange Settling Dust number two. Uh, no surprises. No surprises there. Uh, <laughs> for me, for me this week, I was going to say um, my pick is gonna is gonna surprise everyone. Xander's gonna have to have musical cue for this. But uh, did you guys see that John Linguizamo has a comic book coming out this week called Phenom what? X? Like he's a co-writer on it. Yeah. It's coming out from Image Comics. Okay. I was like, wow, that's 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 wild. Um, anyways, but the book that I'm excited for this week, this may shock folks at home. So Xander, cue up that Eminem song. Venom number one. Uh, me and Danny riding to the ends of the earth. This is Al Ewing, Rom V on writing with Brian Hitch on art. The only thing I have to say is this is so dumb. Why am I even trying this comic? <laughs> uh, however, the preview is promising. Venom, they're promising a Venom horror story, and Ewing and Rom V, like, come on, like these guys are they're masters of of their craft. So I definitely am willing to try at least the number one brian hitch i can take or leave who cares um but uh nonetheless this this looks like it could be fun and we'll see what what's gonna happen six dollars so it better be worth something uh damn okay. uh, besides i will wow. say how else am i supposed to continue my irrational avoidance of donny cates by not picking up his hulk book and instead picking up the venom book that he just left uh i have a brand like, that's really out. petty listen i have wow. a brand okay <laughs> Uh, anyways, I, I should be picking the six sidekicks of Trigger Keaton number six, but I I genuinely want to try this uh, uh, Venom number one. It looks, you know, we'll see what's going to happen. I've never read a Venom book before, really. Like, I think I tried some mm. stuff back in the day when it was like super military Venom and or whatever. But I don't remember what that was about. Um, so this is going to be me kind of diving headfirst into a world of Venom um, that I just don't understand beyond in any capacity, because I don't even think that the Venom movies are worth even touching on to like, you know, make this whole thing happen. So anyways, uh, that's sure. me. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on this Venom book, but I'm at least going to try it. <laughs> uh, they're still trying to make Venom happen, which is always interesting. But, uh, Venom, Venom so. is a con. I've yeah. never read a Venom book, but when I think of Venom, I'm just like, mm, the 90s. Like, right. I mean, but the most the, yes. 90s thing he's, he's such a popular character like people love venom you know what so i guess i guess maybe maybe this will be the book that gets me in the venom camp right um anyways i don't know venom seems kind of edge lordy to me i know and this is i'm just saying yeah i mean brian hitch is fine he's all right but i mean if it's not drawn by toddy mac i got no use for venom if mcfarland's not drawing it what's the I point see. well that's why i was you know? like intrigued by what some people say about the movies which is they're basically a weird rom-com where the like odd couple partners are within the same being mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you know i could wrap my head around that <laughs> i just don't know if that's what the comics also do danny yeah danny yeah. you know ge- verified venom stan is saying that they are a weird rom-com so you know what i think <laughs> that all tracks um, sure. Anyways, we're going to take a quick break. Um, in the break, you guys are going to hear an interview that I did with Kevin Scott, uh, writer of Shadow Service, Star Wars, The High Republic, like that series that's coming out right now, Doctor Who, uh, plenty of other, so many freaking comics and prose books. This dude has, is must be writing nonstop. He's writing right now. I'm certain of it. Um, but yeah, Kevin Scott did a great interview with him. He's such a nice guy to talk to. So check that out. And then after that, we're going to be 
I'm going to have a crisis as we talk about Final Crisis. Uh, So we'll be back (laughs) in just a moment. Today on I Read Comic Books, I am sitting down and talking to the one and only Kevin Scott, creator of a ton of comics, ton of prose books, a ton of so many different things. Kevin, you are one of the most prolific writers I think we've ever talked to on the show. Thank you so much for being here with us. Oh, thanks for inviting me. I'm, I'm really excited today to talk about your new series or the new latest volume of your series, Shadow Service. Volume yep. 2 just came out um, from Vault Comics with art by Corin Howell, colored by Triona Farrell. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about Shadow, Shadow Service? Sure, yeah. So Shadow Service is um, my first creator-owned comic. I've been writing um, sort of licensed books and, 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 and things like that for well, nearly 20 years now, ranging from everything from from Doctor Who to Pacific Rim to Star Wars to Vikings to all kinds of things, really. Um, and while I, I've done original prose, um, I've never really um, had a chance to do an original comic um, before. Um, and yeah, I was t- chatting to Vault and Shadow Service was the result. Um, and it really is a, it's the, it's the inside of my brain. It's um, everything yeah. I've been obsessed with since I was a kid. Um, you know, growing up in the UK, as people might gather from my accent, um, in the late seventies, it meant that I I officially had to like James Bond. It was actually you know treason <laughs> if you didn't. It was, and um, Roger Moore was was Bond. And as far as I was concerned, there was never another. Um, I remember seeing <laughs> Sean Connery and being going, "Who's this Joker? Um, wow. How does how, how, how the hell does he think he's James Bond?" Um, and and so yeah, so I was obsessed about James Bond, and I was obsessed with monsters, and that largely originally came from my love of things like the old um, the original series of Doctor Who. Return of the Jedi with Jabba's Palace, um, which led me into along the, the the path of Hammer Horror and Universal Horror, and then horror in general. Um, and so I became obsessed with the idea of, of a James Bond type figure fighting monsters. And again, that has a lot to do with some of the comics of the day that were coming out over here. And um, we we used to have something called um, Scream, which was a short it was short lived comic. It was a weekly comic along the lines of 2000 AD, which is another sort of uh, weekly classic over here. But this was horror-based completely. And it, it had on the front cover, not for the nervous, on, like a stamp on it every every week. And it was, to be fair, looking back now, I can't... Actually, I can believe it was aimed at kids because a lot of the stuff aimed at kids in the 70s and the UK seemed to be designed to scar them completely. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we would have public service announcements when you got um, Donald Pleasance um, hissing as um, as death and inviting people to go and play in rivers because you might drown. You know, mm-hmm. it was, um, mm-hmm. I love it when they play in the streams. And it's like, you know, and so we <laughs> oh had this sort of stuff. It was, it was literally everywhere. And I, I remember... A few years ago, I was working on some Choose Your Own Adventure books, and I showed my editor some of the stuff we had over here, which was called Fighting Fantasy, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, you go into, and there's a, re- you know, one of the first choices you make in some of those books, you you find, turn to the page, and there's hanged zombies, you know, hanging from nooses and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so it was, kids and horror went together quite quite well in, in the UK in the right. late 70s, early 80s. And in Scream, particularly, there was this script um, called The Dracula File, which was about... Dracula, as you as you imagine, um, it, the 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 point of the strip was that Dracula had the the KGB um, had been dealing with Dracula for many years in Russia and, and in the Eastern Bloc, and they discovered that he'd gone to the UK 
Um, and so they were they were like, well, brilliant. Let, let, let the Prince of Darkness go to the UK because then they can deal with him. He can destroy uh-huh. them and we'll walk in. And one KGB officer defects because he's too, he, he, he can't allow that to happen because he's too many innocent people are going to be die. Right. Are going to die. And I, I followed that strip every week. And it, it really influenced things like Shadow Service because, it, again, it's that idea of um, secret services working against supernatural forces. Right. And the funny thing was that then as Shadow Service came out, because of Shadow Service, I was asked if I would like to write the coda in the revived um, screen of, of Dracula File last year. So I sort of wrote the last chapter of it, which was really odd because oh, no it, you know, it really was like a cir- yeah, circular thing and coming back. Um, That's great, so, yeah. Yeah, it's, it was great. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of those things in, in Doctor Who, there was UNIT, which was a, a sort of black ops group who probably were the, the, the worst black ops group in the world because everyone seemed to know about them. And they were always <laughs> fighting aliens and monsters. So that kind of thing always, it lived in my brain ever since. And I was I was always writing stories about secret agents going up against demons and vampires and werewolves and and for a long time actually i started when i started to write professionally i used to write short stories for fanzines and small presses and wrote about this group called mi666 who were basically the the the, it was the proto shadow service and i tried out different ways and none of the characters really worked um you know and i i'd always come back to this idea and then when i was asked by volt if i would like to put together something it was just the perfect timing and everything sort of um, crystallized in, in, in my mind when I was thinking about it. And that became shadow service. So it is properly, it's a proper, uh, you know, um, continuation of obsession I've had for decades. Um, and so, yeah, if you look at shadow service, there's lots of little Easter eggs to old obscure British horror movies and Doctor sure. Who and, and, and things like that, because it is my sort of love letter um, to those, those kind of stories, but hopefully bringing something new to it and taking it um, a little step further and largely because of Corinne as well, who hasn't got that background at all. Um, mm. And so she's just coming to it for a love of, of, um, of horror, um, horror comics and, and, and action. So between the two of us, uh, you know, I think those two, two things, um, and we spend a lot of time talking about horror movies between us. Um, so those two things uh, have come together to, to form the comic. Yeah, and it's 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 quite a comic. Like I was gonna say, I was I was curious about like you know how you manage to take what feels like pulls from all sorts of different genres and and mash them into one book. Like you've got police procedural stuff, you've got horror elements, you've got you know like the the mystical world. I mean, there's so many different monsters and and baddies you could throw into a series like this. Mm. I I absolutely enjoyed how much potential the overall series had i mean do you see this as being like a forever kind of series that you could write to the end of time or is there like a definitive end that you think you'll have with uh, shadow service well the minute um we're you know we're, we're doing we've got a new arc which is coming I, we haven't got a date yet but it's um we're working on it at the minute so it's going to be early next year um mm-hmm. and, it, and we'll probably have that date pretty soon because we'll have to have solicit soon and so that sort of pushes on on the story we initially did the 10 um, and it was well received, so we, we've pushed for, forward on, uh, onto it. I'm, I'm the kind of writer that needs to know what how things are going to end. Um, so I gotcha. do have an ending in mind. It's mm-hmm. it's I like to have an ending in mind for every story, and not necessarily a full plan of how we're going to get there. Um, you know, so there's still room to maneuver. But I definitely like to know where I'm going. And so there is an image that I've had in my in my head for a last scene. Um, of shadow service but even that last scene has the opportunity to have life be you know for life to continue beyond it because 
because it is that kind of tradition of you know James Bond will return, you know, and it's um, right. Right, right, right. and it was it was so nice. And the last when I wrote the issue ten script, by that point we confirmed that we were going to come back for another um, another arc, and so I could write Shadow Service will return on the last panel. Um, <laughs> so that was an, a nice little moment for me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's we've got plans um, for at least I've got plans in my head for at least three more arcs um, to get us to that point. And obviously these are, this is comics. So, you know, you, you, you don't know what the fuse is going to bring, but that's definitely where we're aiming. Um, and, and it's definitely what, um, what I've got planned out. So as I said, absolutely got the end point in, in mind, but I, I've left myself some options that, um, so Corinne and I can, can work together in different ways to get there. Yeah, no, I, I was going to say with, when you introduce like a new, I guess, I, and I don't know what you call it, like department in uh, in the United Kingdom, like yeah. or at least in the government. You know, you kind of imply that there is a foreverness to it that it's always mm. been, it will forever will be, you know, kind of thing, um, which yeah. I find to be really fascinating. And the idea of MI six 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 or you know the official name in the book um, was was really tickling to me. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'm I'm excited to see what the potential. I mean, like and new potential characters. I mean, especially given you know how the developments of the first two volumes. You know, I think there's a lot of opportunity for for new things to be introduced new characters to come about and stuff which mm. kind of brings me to my next question about yeah. like your main character you know gina myers private detective meets yeah. this <laughs> I, I don't want to i don't know how to describe this character other than to say like the infinite forever will be hex i don't really know without yes. getting too into the details about it um so, like yeah, hex is a hex is interesting because actually he existed in previous incarnations of mi666 when i was writing it as short stories okay um, okay but he was very different in those points right, um, right. you know so but hex has always been um in any iteration of the character that sort of led to this point he's always been around a very long time um so um yeah hex for people who don't know um he looks like um we're anywhere between sort of eight and 12 depending on how how you want to age him and mm-hmm. um but he's infinitely older than that um <laughs> you know and so um well, not infinitely. There is, you know, he's but he's been around for centuries, and right. so right. and he has been part of this organization for a very long time. Um, and again, it comes back to my love of horror and creepy kids. And and one thing I I love about I mean I have so many things about Corinne's work, but I love the way she draws Hex because yeah. he is so calm and so controlled in his little Lord Fontroy suit, drinking his his um, China cup cups of tea. Uh-huh. Um, I was getting like I very think, like children of the corn vibes in some yeah, yeah, panels no, absolutely i mean we 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 described him in the first when we were talking about him, you know he's like a combination between children of the corn slappy from um is it slappy from goosebumps you know the yeah. look at <laughs> um and i think in the first <laughs> first perfect. issue in the script i you know uh, um, that, that he appears in the first issue that he appears in this issue too i described him and you know um and said something like um and gina will hate him um, right down to his sinister freckles, mm-hmm. and and sinister freckles became a byword for for him after that point. So, <laughs> so it, but uh, what we'll see when we see Shadow Service come back is that we'll see the, their relationship change because she is um, by this point, and you know, for people who haven't read it, I don't want to give too many spoilers, but she's immersing herself. She's a detective. She's a street detective, um, or private detective, a street mm-hmm. witch we call her, um, who uses her powers to be a private detective detective to find people and gets recruited by the secret service that deals specifically with supernatural shenanigans and um and yeah so her relationship is strained to say the least through most of the first mission yeah. but w- when shadow service returns we're going to see 
that a little bit of time has passed um, and she is, you know, she's she's a member of the team by this point. And so she is starting to um, have relationships um, within within the organization, build those relationships and and bordering on friendships. And I'm, I don't want to get into who those friendships are, but, you know, her mm-hmm. relationship with Hex is going to be interesting because he wants her there because he hex is the ultimate user he he like he likes finding people who are broken that he can then mold into weapons of his own basically and so right. he in 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 gina he sees um such potential and also a mystery because she's a character that he's seen everything you know he's he's seen mm-hmm. empires the british empire rise and fall he's you know he he's seen monarchs come and go he's seen governments come and go um and in Gina, he's seen someone that, he, it, that he's never seen before. He's seen something that works within you know, the magic she uses that he's never experienced. And so to him, she's fascinating and he doesn't want to let her go because she is new and he hasn't had a lot of new in his life for a, for a long time. Yeah, I, I found the, the whole magic system of this world to be really, really interesting and in how it varied from character to character. And I think getting a story like this where the, everything's coming kind of from Gina's perspective for the most part, um, mm. and we're finding out things as she's finding out things to be really, really cool. <clears throat> I guess, I don't know if you have like a whole detailed like manifesto about how the, <laughs> the entire magic system works in this world, but could you give us a little bit of peek as to like what the drive was? Cause that, it looks like there's just like keywords and all this other stuff. Is there, is there yeah. more to it than that? Mag- magic in, in, um, shadow service is largely vocal magic. So it's largely magic words, um, and, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and spoken magic, uh, even though there, there are various different demonic powers that can do different things as well but definitely from the main source of magic in the world it's vocal what makes gina interested um, interesting is the fact that she's never been trained and Mm. she just knows the words and so there's a um there is a mystery there that hex is fascinated by because hex has been trained for a very long time he was a disciple of a a guy called john d who is a real person in english history um Mm. he worked um he was the sort of the astrologer um, and advisor and mathematician to Queen Elizabeth I. Um, He is the original 007 because he used to sign his letters 007 to Queen Elizabeth (laughs) because people were saying he was a spy. And by all, all um, you know, evidence that's been found, he did absolutely used to spy on European courts and send information back. And yeah, it would always be signed 007, which is where Ian Fleming got the the code name for it. No way. (laughs) <laughs> um so in the story yeah hex was was trained by john d and so he his form of magic is is based on the magic that in the real world in our world john d used to say existed because he he um believed he used to talk to angels um and, huh. and used to scry and he had a enochian magic which was all to do with language so th- that's sort of the basis for the magic system that i've built but yeah for, cool. but for gina she usually the idea is that usually it's passed on and it's knowledge that's passed on but in moments of stress the, the you know she says at one point i've heard these words in my head all my life and i've never known what they are and what they mean but mm-hmm. when she needs to use them she will use them and it it's an instinct for her and so she can instinctively use magic which is not the way magic works for everyone else in the in the in the universe so right. yes yeah, so hex is fascinated and as we go into the new arc, which will be coming um, next year, she's trying to explore where this has come from as well, because 
because of revelations that happen in the second volume. Um, gotcha. she's, she's starting to, to explore because she's just always accepted this. She thought she was unique. She thought that she knew magic existed because she could do it. And she knew, and her best friend was a talking rat. So she knew that the <laughs> world right. wasn't always what you, you thought it was, but she, she did think that it was, you know, she was a freak. And now she's found out that through the work that she's done with MI666, she's worked out that the world is quite freaky, actually, and she's just mm -hmm. a part of it. So she's starting to explore and enjoy what she can do and enjoy her power. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's, uh, I, this makes me even more excited for the next volume because I, these are all the questions that I have as a, as a, as a reader um, mm. that I want to find out. So I can't wait for the next volume. Um, I guess uh, to, to move on a little bit, uh, you know, mm. I'm, I'm curious, you know, you've done a lot of work for, for big properties, like you mentioned yeah. before, like Doctor Who, Pacific Rim, mm. I mean, Star Wars, The High Republic, like mm. these are humongous names um, in mm. like licensed comics and stuff. Um, how did your work for, for something like Shadow Service differ from how you approach work for, for those properties? Well, obviously, the biggest difference is you haven't got to persuade at least 17 people to let you tell a story, you know. So <laughs> all of those, when you're working for someone else's, in someone else's sandpit, and this, go, you know, goes for everything from working on something like Star Wars or Doctor Who or, or working on, with DC, on their heroes, you know. You have to build your reputation within those groups and you have to, you're almost persuading people that, you know, they, they you can be trusted with their creations mm -hmm. and, and, mm -hmm. As part of that process, you outline heavily and you send stuff through. And, and for Star Wars in particular, there is an entire group of people who are called Story Group, whose job it is to make sure that continuity works and that the stories match everything else in that particular galaxy. Um, and so you go through a lot of processes. I think I worked in that world in that way so long that when I actually came back to doing my own things again, um, after I said I've, I've done some prose work that's my own, but then I suddenly realized, well, hang on, I, the only one I've got to approve, approve this really is me um, mm -hmm. and, Cor and Corinne and, and obviously work with the editors with Tay and Adrian at Vault. But I haven't got to go and send it off to make sure it's not going to contradict the film and it's happening right. at the same time, you know. So that actually makes a massive difference. And at first it's terrifying because there's no, there's no borders, there's no boundaries, there's no one right. telling you can't do that. Um, and sometimes <laughs> those moments can bring the most creativity you know so mm -hmm. I, i've been working so i've been working dc quite a bit on, on various things some of which have been announced some not and there's a series uh, i've got at the minute called titans united from dc um mm -hmm. which is a sort of version of, of the titan teen titans which is the the lineup from the tv show but it's more it's nearer the it's nearer the the comic continuity but it's not quite the comic continuity because dc you know so yeah, you know, right. there's, there's, <laughs> because multiverse and with that i had such a, a almost like a shopping list of things it had to do and characters it had to involve. So you get you get that blueprint and then you write a story through uh, within those parameters. And actually sometimes, yeah, they can, you can sit there going, well, how am I going to bring that character? You know, how am I going to do that? Mm -hmm. But that's the fun of it. But also when you sit down, you know what, what you can do and what you can't. When you're obviously working on your own creator own projects, the person that tells you you can't do something is yourself. And so you have to work out what those parameters are. So at first it can be quite scary and you have to sort of give yourself permission to, to make those decisions that you make decisions that, uh, and you know, you haven't actually got a fight to try and keep them, you know, which mm -hmm. is something that can happen. You have to choose your battles when you're working in licensed comics um, or in licensed material, because sometimes you believe passionately that, yeah, um, Aquaman should do this. 
And but you know, at one point there will, and you fight that point, but there will be a point when the editor says, "Well, no, Aquaman can't." Um, And so, yeah, that's all part of the game when you're working on your own material now. And I've I've got some more creator-owned titles coming out over the next um, year or so with various other publishers. And nice, yeah. So yeah, it's amazing. It's great. I'm really looking forward to them being out there. But you again, you have that thing of like you know, you have to. It's all on your shoulders, which is at first scary, but I'm really embracing it now because I'm really enjoying the freedom it's given you to, to do. Say, this is the book I want to do completely. You haven't got to make the compromises, really. Right. Other than within your own team. And obviously that's something, the one good thing about working in this world, um, working in any comics is you have to be a team player. You know, mm-hmm. there's no two ways about that. And a, a, your career won't last very long if you're not. And so when I come to this, you know, and, and quite often because I came up with the idea for Shadow Service first and then we brought on Corin, mm-hmm. because I worked in shared universes and, and things like the High Republic when there are so many people involved across so many different media, I'm used to going, okay, we can't do this, but what about if we do that? And I'm used to finding ways around and I'm used to other people having to put input in. Right. So when you bring in an artist and they turn around and say, oh, what about this? You know, sometimes as a writer who's created something and then you've brought someone th- someone in, your hackles go up and you're like, no, it shouldn't be like that. But because of my background, I think I've um, I've a, sort of I've adapted to that way of work anyway. So if you know, Corinne comes and brings something to the table that isn't what I was I was thinking about, I don't necessarily just go yes to everything. But it's it's it definitely in, it evolves the story every time and actually. I'd never expected Shadow Service to have so many monsters in it, which, you know, for me is a, is a crazy thing to say because it's what, right. what I love. I think originally, originally I sold it on the pitch of um, Tinker Taylor Soldier Witch. Um, and so I think in my mind, I had it a little bit more that sort of um, John McCarry, more sort of hard bitten uh, espionage novel kind of thing with less sure. f- fantastical elements in it. But then I saw how much fun Corin was having drawing demons. And and how much fun I was getting having getting those pages through, and so they. That's when we decided. All right, all bets are off. We're going to go massive. You know, we're going we're going to go demon right the way down. Um, and there's so many elements like that in the book which I've loved, um, and why I love comics in general. If you read Shadow Service, you'll notice there's these big skeletal statues that turn up quite a lot in the background, which is completely was 100% current. You know, Amazing. I think I think there's a one in one of the early issues. Hex is doing a ritual, and he sat in front of this amazing Baphomet angel skeletal creature thing, which is a statue in the middle of MI six 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 apparently. And I, that came back, and and Corinne said, "What about this?" And I was like, "What? What's that?" <laughs> and then I went, "Yes, obviously." And then the next issue that she there was another one in the background of they've got a mobile headquarters, which is in a white transit van, which is a in a little, you know, nod to some of the work I've done in the past is much bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. <laughs> right, um, yeah. And in the middle of that, she drew one of these amazing, huge skeletal angels again. And so there's a bit later on, I think around sort of issue eight, eight or nine, where you you see what those skeletal angels are. And that, that was always part of the story. But I, I, I didn't actually know what they were, these creatures. And then I just realized it was staring me in the face and, and Corinne had been placing them there in the background. So it, it was one of those moments when you have a per- perfect combination of an, a concept and an idea and the artist has already sort of been putting that work in and you can bring it all together. Um, and that's what makes comic work so fascinating and so brilliant. And yeah, and I, think, I think it helps to come from that background that you can, you can be 
um, you can maneuver quickly. And sometimes when you're working on something like, not so much on the High Republic, because that's something I've been involved in sort of like creating from the, from the ground up, mm-hmm. but I've done Star Wars work when I've dealt with something that's sort of linking into like Solo. Um, and when, when something changed in Solo, then it, it, it may had a ripple effect through all the linked media. And so you have to move ah. quickly. And so that kind of ability to think on your feet and, and, and adjust, and you get this as well if you're working with the big two on superhero stuff, because obviously something else can happen in another part of the universe and affect what you're doing. Right. I think that help really helps when you're you're working on your creator own stuff because it gives you the flexibility to to move with what the rest of the team are doing and, and to react to it. Yeah, and, and I, I think Shadow Service definitely definitely benefits from it because mm. yeah, some of those demon monster things that oh, we saw were amazing, incredible in this book. I'm telling you, folks, if you haven't read this book, check it out. The first second volumes are available; they're amazing. Um, I guess my my last question here for mm-hmm. you, so we can wrap up, is um, yeah. what kind of comics do you like to read? Have you been reading anything interesting recently that you'd like to tell the folks at home about? Um, well, I think anyone reads any of my stuff, and I, I, I probably include star wars in there as well knows that I, I love uh, horror um mm-hmm. you know and, and i love horror comics um i think I, I mean i do read a heck of a lot of superhero comics i mean it's still my first love you know with comics you know i remember mm-hmm. I, I got into comics because largely over here we had a lot of humor comics um which was sort of weekly and there's a few still left that sort of weekly humor comics that have lots of little strips of like one page or two pages and then the, the, the main thrust of action comics came through Marvel UK. He used to print everything, you know, they used to read, mm-hmm. he used to, and they would do things like Star Wars Weekly, which would have Star-Lord in the background, in the backup strip, because it had the word star in it. Or they'd do <laughs> Transformers Weekly, and then in the back they do Machine Man, because he's a robot, you know. That, that was the logic behind it. So, um, and then they brought out Secret Wars, and that blew my mind, because I don't think I'd really ever experienced superheroes before and i suddenly realized there was this big joined universe where you know when i first saw spider-man standing next to the fantastic four and i couldn't quite believe that i'd never realized they were all in the same world um so that you know i was was really young so yeah i'm I'm a massive superhero fan a huge dc fan because we couldn't find them over here when i was growing up dc comics Ah, weren't widely read um and so um and for me at the minute i think the the, one of the best books they're doing is this joker which um, James Tinian um, for, is writing. Um, if you're reading the Bat books, they're obviously brilliant at the minute. Joker is incredible, um, just to show mm-hmm. what you could do within that kind of universe. Um, it's basically a very noir story of Jim Gordon, who is now, he's not a commissioner anymore, he's, sort of, he's freelance, and he's been given a commission to go and kill the Joker, who's hiding out in Europe. Um, and it's just, it's just wonderful. It's just, it's very... Um, very literary it's got great action it's just it's perfect uh, yeah definitely go and read that but yeah so one of the other some of the other books that i've loved recently I, I don't know if you've read did you read scouts honor um from aftershock david Paposi? yeah i read the first issue of that but i have, i didn't yeah. finish it yet, yeah at least it's on my to read list yeah definitely um I, I, that's the kind of book i love i'm i'm a real post-apocalyptic um mm-hmm. horror kind of guy and so i love a good book like that um and so yeah scout song is probably one of my favorite ones um coming um up of recently and i'm loving what um scott's doing scott snyder's doing with his his line at, at comicsology as well um gotcha. i think i suppose that's i love it when a, a creator is given the chance to say i'm going to do show all the different elements of what i do um you mm-hmm. know and 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 you see from um, the first one was that we have demons which is just all out you know back crazy 
um mm-hmm. you know and, and to some of the books so the books he's, he's doing um with francesco um francavelli he's done um, night the ghoul which is sort of more classic horror um mm-hmm. kind of thing i love that i love seeing people's influences um yeah. coming through in the same way that hopefully the influences um i'm showing through shadow service um land with people yeah yeah, no. The the thing about those Scott Snyder books is he's, he's bringing in, you know, he's a big name, but then he's also bringing in like massive, uh, you know, creative talent mm. along with him to do those mm. books. It's very, very exciting. Uh, but it's yeah, it's an exciting time at the minute for independence, you know. So, and mm-hmm. I think it's that thing when you've got names like when you got the Scotts and James of this world sort of stepping out and and, and creating their own own um imprints really because let's face it that's what they're doing it's that thing of you know a rising tide lifts all ships and so it's 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 one while i love the big two and i I, I love always be a superhero fan um i love the fact that the indie scene is so strong now um and and it's so so accepted as well It, it seems to be I think that's a lot to do with the fact that we've also live in a world where every TV streaming company wants as much IP as possible, so they're, they're definitely <laughs> looking for things. But right, um, right. you know, again, that's a, it's a good place to be at the minute because people are looking for stories, you know. And and yeah, I, I'm definitely I've loved the even you know I've been going to things like um, San Diego for like five six years now. Um, even mm-hmm. in that time, to see the growth of places like Vault. Um, you know, and yeah. that you know, Vault has gone from naught to sixty in no time whatsoever. And you sort of <laughs> look know. at things like, and again, I'm showing my horror roots, but things like Autumnal um, by Daniel Kreis, it was a, it was amazing. That's sort of a very Wicker Man type story mm-hmm. in four, where uh, yeah, it's, it's basically if you love Wicker Man, you will love Autumnal or um, or Ma- Mike Maurice's. I, I, the name's gone now. The Is plot. it it? No, no, not oh, so much barbaric. Barbaric, oh, barbaric. Yeah. great, yeah. Um, it's funny because a lot of those things, it, a lot of the vault books really do remind me of 2000 AD from the UK. That's oh, sort of, sure. You know, oh, sure. There, there's definitely, when you think about 2000 AD, um, the, the writers of 2000 AD, the artists of 2000 AD led the sort of British invasion of Vertigo and, you know, in mm-hmm. the 80s and 90s. And we're sort of seeing that kind of feel, you know. So again, a lot of those, a lot of those stories I could absolutely see in the pages of 2000 AD. So yeah, I'm, I'm loving what companies like Volta are doing because they, again, it's, they don't really have a house style. The house style mm-hmm. is that they're good stories, you know? For sure. And, um, and yeah, the amount of work they're putting out at the minute is phenomenal. Yeah, no, it's and it's it's all like, I honestly can't think of a vault book that I've read that I didn't like. So, I mean, and that, that goes to say, you know, the same thing for Shadow Service. Like everybody out there, if you haven't had a chance, go check out Shadow Service. It's fantastic. And uh, yeah, no, it's, Kevin, thank you so much for, no, for joining you. us today. I mean, this has been a fantastic conversation and I look forward to volume three or the next arc of Shadow mm-hmm. Service. And yeah, I guess any, anywhere, where, is there anywhere that people can find you on the internet where they could reach out to you if they have any questions that they just want to check out what else you're doing? Sure, yeah. My website is kevinscott.com. Um, and if you find me on Twitter, I'm on Twitter far too much. Um, and that's just <laughs> at Kevin Scott. Um, and I think to, to complete the set, I'm on Instagram at, um, at Kevin Scott Writer. So, um, so yeah, come and come and find me. I, I love talking about comics, and I will happily to do that for the for the rest. Of, well, the time I should be actually writing the comics. Let's put it that way. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, thank you again so much. I, I really appreciate your time, and uh, yeah, I think we're going to jump back to the show. And uh, thank you again, Kevin. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This week on I Read Comic Books, we are talking about the 
humongous series, Final Crisis, written by Grant Morrison. And honestly, I don't even think we have enough time in the episode to list all of the artists on this book. Uh, mm-hmm. Paul, Kara, and I read this book. Uh, Paul and Kara, Paul came to me and he knew that Kara was going to be in the episode and said, hey, guys, let's read this Grant Morrison book that I know that you both are excited to read. Uh, let's read Final <laughs> Crisis. But more importantly, let's read the Essentials edition, which comes with not just Final <laughs> Crisis number one through seven, but also a bunch of little tie-in stuffs. And from a, from the perspective of someone who just read the book and sat down, I don't know which was a Final Crisis story, which one wasn't. But all that being said, spoiler warning for pretty much everything surrounding Final Crisis, which came out a while ago, but if you mm-hmm. haven't read it, Pause that thing. Go read the 400 pages of the Essentials Edition. Then come on back and we can talk about all things Superman versus Bat God. We can talk about the multiverse. We can talk about uh, the flashes running through time. There's so many things that we could potentially talk about. So I guess before we before we get into that noise, um, yep. can we get a quick summary, Kara, about what Final Crisis is? <laughs> and then quick Paul, one, Mike. maybe you can follow up with another summary. <laughs> Okay. 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 So I'm going to start with a summary and then get into my opinions. We'll do summaries first and then we'll. No, no. I know. I'm telling myself, Mike. I'm telling myself. (laughs) All right. So once upon a time, Jack Kirby went to DC from Marvel in a huge huff in a rage and. Quick summary, Carol. And created. A, a whole fourth world full of new gods and the bad world of apocalypse. And some say mm-hmm. that this was Jack Kirby's way of building a backdoor to the Marvel universe from the DC universe. Cause this whole corner of the DC universe that also included um, the forever people and characters like Kamandi, the last boy are all Kirby in this mm-hmm. little corner playpen of the DC universe. Cause DC was like, whatever you want to do, buddy, just right. do it. Right. So this is important because these characters form the core structure of DC's final crisis, which was published mm-hmm. in 2009. I want to say in 2008, Yep. Yeah, I was in college. This is like real flashbacks to me being in my dorm, reading all these books spread out in front of me. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so <laughs> the the bad guys on Apocalypse have decided to infiltrate the Earth by possessing the bodies of people and re like bringing their their overlord Darkseid, who will unify the entire multiverse under his unity of thought and the heroes don't know that this is going on and there's all these little side stories you get a glimpse of the dc version of the monitor characters who oversee all the multiverses and are just watching everything but they are starting to have personalities and feelings and narrative arcs because they've been infected by narrative because uh, Grant Morrison, Barry Allen, the second Flash, who famously disintegrated to death during DC's first huge crossover book, Infinite Crisis, in the 80s, is not dead. He's just been outrunning death, who is the Black Zoom, the Black Flash. Um, 
And he is, he has been running so fast that he blipped out of infinite crisis time into final crisis time so that he and Wally West, the third flash could lead death to dark side at the crucial moment. Meanwhile, Superman is taken out of time away from his dying wife, Lois Lane, so that he can molecularly merge with the evil Superman from a different parallel earth in order to punch a space vampire. And the Batman has been hooked up to one of the apocalypse crony machines to make the ultimate soldier clones. But Batman is so traumatized that his trauma burns through all of their plans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, bad guys lose because good triumphs. And <laughs> Uh, uh, I am struggling so hard because this entire book is tangents. I don't even want to talk about the Marvels because I'm going to get very upset talking about Mary Marvel. (laughs) Uh, So, Paul. Paul, your (laughs) counterpoint. Yes. (laughs) I don't, I don't, I don't see how you can't like this book based on that summary. I mean, what's not to like? Uh, No, I, I think, I, I think the, the the crux of the book again is Morrison trying to do a big crisis level crossover event story, but they do it in a way that fits their worldview in a, in a, in a sense, mm-hmm. and it's attempt to make a crisis feel like an actual crisis, and what it would actually feel like if there was a black hole caused by dark side falling backward through time. Mm-hmm. And landing on Earth. And the whole story is sort of built around the idea where space-time is collapsed. Darkseid finds a way to enslave humanity with the anti-life equation. Meanwhile, Superman discovers there's an even bigger threat, which is a giant space vampire that was a monitor. Mm -hmm. And in the end, (laughs) the good guys win because Superman uses the miracle machine to wish for a happy ending. There you go. That's Final Crisis. Oh, is that what happened? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Oh they my God. Says it in the book. Okay. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> guys, this is the. I'm just going to say it right off the bat, and I promise I have constructive things to talk about. But this book is the reason I stopped buying comics for several years. <laughs> so, okay, you know, and I, I can kind of understand that. Um, sure. If only so coming at this book, I remember when this book was coming out, and I remember seeing the covers. Man, I've never seen cooler fucking comic book covers in my life except for the on top of the ones at least at the time that were coming out with final crisis some of those dark side like with the omega symbol on his hands and stuff that's some of the coolest shit you can see in comic books right super bold so so i remember thinking man dc must be having a moment right because i at the time was not reading dc i was it was 2009 and i was very much like i only read marvel comic books like that that was who i was (laughs) Um, that's how sure, high right. pitched my voice was at the time too. Is this a strange mm. thing? Thirteen years ago. Um, but yeah. So I I remember thinking like, man, there must be this must be a huge thing. Marvel's got its own events going on, so I, I there's no way I can oh, even yeah. get hooked into this. And I had no real interest in reading a lot of DC books. And again, doing this show has opened my eyes to so many different comic books and try, trying new characters and all that stuff. Um, so. With my foray into DC over the past, you know, since 2009 when this came out, uh, mm. I feel like I, f- I feel like I have a sol- decent grip on like a lot of characters. I kind of understand the basics, maybe the big 10, maybe the big 15 over at DC. Sure. Sitting down to read this book, 
I know no. nothing about DC. No. I never read a DC <laughs> yep. book before. Everything that I thought I knew didn't matter. Uh, and I don't think that that is a fault of, of Grant Morrison. I don't think that is a fault of me. I just think that the type of story that was being told required you to be invested in DC comics. Um, yes and, and no. And I, should, I, and I should point out that the DC universe has been rebooted twice since this book came out. So, I mean, yeah. what you're reading now is is not the same as the universe so, that this was. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, Mike, yeah, yes and no, because one of my big frustrations with this book is that there were a lot of main characters who were created specifically for this book. So, for someone like me who had been very invested in the DC universe and was reading everything every lead up to this crisis every tie-in book reread pre-wikipedia reading the dc comics encyclopedia book like it was the bible like trying to figure out who was who and everyone's backstory yeah and then they give me final crisis and say this is it guys and like half the characters are made up for this book so for me that diminished the stakes okay like so like all the monitors made up I mean, yes, well, they're all made up, but like for this book, the <laughs> monitors are made up. Mm-hmm. The space vampire was not like a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there was like a heavy, like I think reading this now, a super qu- cringe worthy level of focus on this like Japanese super team that just feels like a white dude's understanding of Japanese pop culture at the time manifested as a superhero team. And they have a lot of speaking time. And I'm like, but we don't know who they are and we don't care about them. And they're cringe. Mm. For for the record, I, can I just, can I just say that I, my interpretation of that, uh, the super young team, the Japanese superhero team is uh, Morrison doing an updated version of the forever people, uh, which is why Sonny Sumo shows up and joins the team. Mm. So, I get it from people part of the, but again, if you don't know Jack Kirby's fourth world, you would never make that connection. So I think that's one fault of the book. I did not make that connection. Those connections are, are not made clear. Commandi, yeah. the so. last boy shows up for like two panels. And if you don't know what, who Commandi is, you're just like a long, Wait, is, that, boy. is that the guy who was sitting on the Island in the, in the, uh, you, the Statue of Liberty was in the background and I was like, yep. Planet of the Apes yep. moment. Okay. Yep. I that's didn't know what the fuck was going on with that. So, okay. Yeah. That- exa- okay. So, um, there's a lot of heavy featuring of Frankenstein, Agent of Shade. And right, right, if right. you're not a nerd about that particular subsection of DC Comics Silver Age, you don't know who that is. I didn't know who sure. that was. And he's so- heavily featured, which, fine, but. So I guess, you know, I, I don't want to necessarily keep, we, we could go down this path for a little while, I think. Um, yeah. And I do want to kind yeah, of come my back My point to is that. like, even as someone, like I considered myself a well-versed DC fan mm-hmm. and this book, I was like, who, who, why, why, who? Sure. So yeah. I guess my question for, for Paul, I know that this is a book yeah. that you were very excited about. You wanted us to read it. <laughs> um, and I, yes. and like, I'm glad that I read it. Like, honestly, all things considered, I think that it puts a new perspective on Grant Morrison's writing for me, as well as <laughs> kind of gives me in a another set of doors to open in the DC universe that I didn't know were there in the first place. So what was it that made you want to revisit this book? Okay, uh, just a little background here. So um, 
this book was the book that got me reading comics again in a, in a, in a sense. Uh, yeah. Whereas for Kara, it was her exit. For me, it was my entry. I had God not been reading it. superhero <laughs> comics <laughs> regularly. You you really are the Earth 2 version. Or Earth 3, I can't keep track. Oh my God. Kind of our opposites in that regard. Yeah. Right, but, um, this is, but this is why I agreed to do this episode. This is why I'm revisiting right. my trauma because, I, <laughs> because we're so opposite on Grant Morrison. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, I know. It's, it's very funny to me. I, I, I enjoy talking out. about it. I had yeah. to find out how this would happen. I I, um, I enjoy talking about Graham Morrison with you. So that's one of the reasons I picked this book. Again, I remember reading it when it was coming out. I just started going back to comic shops regularly. Again, Mike, seeing those covers and being a deep DC fan from since I was a kid, I said, yes, this is speaking to me. I had read Morrison's Justice League when it was coming out in the 90s, but I had not read a lot of their other uh, big important works at that point. Mm-hmm. So it was a little uh, overwhelming at first, but I dove into that. I'm like, okay, I don't quite get what's going on here. I need to know more. And I found myself really taken with the idea that Morrison was structuring the typical superhero crossover world reality ending event and hyper compressing it in a way that no one else really does. Mm -hmm. You know, this Mm -hmm. is a time we're talking 2008, 2009 when the buzzword around comics, when I was getting back into it was decompressed storytelling. So you have Brian Michael Bendis spending 12 issues to give you the Spider-Man origin story. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Morrison takes it in the opposite direction and says, I'm just going to give you not even the highlights. I'm going to give you the stuff that's happening in between the highlights of the story. You know, it's all interstitial moments compressed into a story And I was really taken with that. And as the story went on, I found myself really enjoying the idea of an event that didn't function maybe cohesively as a narrative, but was filled with a lot of great ideas that were just hit or miss. And if they landed, cool. If they didn't, you're on to the next idea. It was almost like Morrison doing a a 21st century version of a Jack Kirby comic, which essentially what it is. Sure. And when I reread it for this... um, this uh, episode, I see the flaws a lot more clearly. It is a deeply flawed comic. Don't get me wrong. This is a mess. It does not work in a lot of ways. But the moments where it clicks for me, it clicks on an emotional level that I really, really cherish. I think I really love reading this comic while at the same time recognizing and, and checking off the checklist of all of its flaws. So mm. I'm glad we're talking about it because I think there's a lot here to unpack, both good and bad. Sure. I mean, like some of some of the things that I really liked about this book were like the mystery of how Orion died and how like all of the various DC characters investigated in their own different ways, right? And we had a ton of <laughs> fucking people trying to figure out how did this god die? Like, what is this bullet? How did this bullet end up? It was like carbon dated fifty years in the past. Like, I like. Yeah. It's comic books, but I still found myself like really interested in the mystery that was there. I liked how the Green Lantern Corps were like, well, we're here to do this thing. And then we end up with Dan Turpin being like, well, I, I'm i this guy. I smoke cigarettes and <laughs> man, I'm angry. Uh, like, And yeah. Renee Montoya is also there. Like, and again, I know some of these characters and some of them I don't, but I thought that the like seeing the DC universe trying to like solve this mystery altogether versus like them all, all getting their own book and ha- having this just be a storyline in one of those books, I thought was really, really cool. Um. Yeah, yeah. I, I I will say the first half of the book is the best part. I mean, I I think there's a lot of great stuff that happens once Superman goes to the bleed and meets the space vampire. But yeah. the first half of the book, when it Wait a minute. when it when it is the straightforward New God story, I mean that's that's my shit. And you know, you you glossed over the art team. I do want to say that J.G. Jones draws 
the most the big chunk of the main Final Crisis uh, story. And his artwork is fantastic. I think it looks amazing. Um, eventually, Doug Monkey takes over most of the art mm-hmm. for the second half of the book. And that, that shift makes sense as things get crazier and even more comic booky. Doug Monkey works better than J.G. Jones. Mm-hmm. Anyway. But yeah, those early few issues are fantastic. Uh, when you slowly see Darkseid taking over, when you realize that Morrison actually makes the new gods interesting for the first time in a long time, mm-hmm. and he makes Darkseid an actual scary villain. I'm sorry, they make Darkseid a scary villain. Because mm-hmm. um, Darkseid's been working behind the scenes for years, laying the groundwork to eventually take over. Well, Again, the story the story begins with Darkseid falling backwards through time, punching a hole through space-time. But, but you know, did I, that's the coolest thing but ever. But did I miss something in the book? Because I feel like this all happens in caption boxes, right? Yes, like, that's, sure. that's yeah. one of my huge yeah. critiques is that a lot of the story is like, here's a caption box and here's exposition about what just happened off panel. Sure. And I'm like, why? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I, I just want to make sure because... I genuinely felt like in the first 120 pages that I read in the first sitting, because I read this in three sittings. Um, I mean, it's <laughs> Oof, a long book. It's sure. a long book. Like, it's not even that it was hard to read. It's just it's a long book. And like, uh, yeah, the first 120 pages, I just kept thinking, like, am I missing something? Are there pages Mike, where I'm supposed to see these Mike, things happen? Let me paint yeah. this picture for you. Final Crisis is the end point of a fifth, not one, two, 52 issue weekly comic books right that right right, right. counting so 52 issues that's not even including the mini series prequels that led up to this book right. this was like the only thing dc was churning out for like a year or two was mm-hmm. books related to final crisis like this was the entire mm-hmm. universe and you know um it's- but the, and, that's, and that's fine, right? Like, I think that, like, the thing that really, I think, confused me is that I didn't take the approach to this book that I should have, which was, this is a big, insane manga storyline that's happening. And if I had just <laughs> approached it with, like, roll with every single punch that comes in caption dialogue boxes, because I do it all the time in weekly shonen books that I read, and I just go, oh, and then they, you know, this whole thing is healed, and they show, like, one panel of a city that's, like, a quarter of an inch by a half an inch, right? And I go, oh, okay, they fixed this huge problem, and then the story can continue. If I had just approached this book like that, I don't think I would have had as many problems in in asking for more continuity throughout this storyline, because ultimately it all makes sense by the time i got to the end i went yep all the pieces lined up uh it took a yep. really weird path to get there it looked exactly like the omega beam or whatever dark side shot at the end but you know what we <laughs> sure. got there and that's that's all that mattered so i don't know i guess kara did you have any anything that you pulled out of this book that you liked in your second reading here <laughs> uh, okay. well i okay before no, no okay before i before i get into that i do want to make it very clear to you also mike that when the, there were a couple issues in here that were just devoted to Superman's mating versions of himself punching the space vampire sidebar. Mm-hmm. Those comics were published with 3D printed glasses, like 3D glasses. No. So yes. when you yes. open, so when in the comic, there's that awkward moment where the mystery person that shows up to say, Superman, you have to step outside of time and save everything. And then she's like, and you have to turn on your 4D vision. That's -hmm, when you put mm -hmm. on your 3D glasses, your little like your blue lens and your red lens. And the whole rest of the book was 3D printed with those inks. No fucking way. (laughs) 
and I'm so it sorry was, you couldn't awesome. experience that, this. Oh, no, that, so great. that explains the bizarre layouts of those pages. Yes. Um, yeah. Oh, man. Exactly. That's, that's, I mean, I know it's a gimmick, but that's kind of a cool gimmick. It's a super me. gimmick. <laughs> it's okay. the best. It's, it's awesome. Yeah. Look, with this book, when it when it came out, and I had been so invested in all of this, and I wanted to know everything and absorb everything. This is was this was my problem with the recent Star Wars movies too. I read everything leading up to Rise of Skywalker, and then it was trash. Mm, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. So I read everything leading up to Final Crisis, and then I was like, "What is going on? I don't understand what is happening." And rereading it ten like ten ten plus years later with more knowledge about comic books, more experience talking about what makes a story resonate or an arc resonate, I could kind of see what Morrison was trying to do. And I could pick out what things I would have chosen to do Hmm. to make the story resonate more for me. Like I get that Morrison was trying to do like a thing with it doesn't have to be linear because time is collapsing upon itself. So I'm going to reflect that experience and the whole thing is going to feel disjointed because that's what these characters are experiencing. And, and I understand that's what he was trying to do, but I still don't like it. Um, there, there was one character who showed up in like the Superman section, Captain Adam, I think. And everything that character said, I was like, oh, this is Grant Morrison's brain download. Like, mm-hmm. this, this yeah. character mm-hmm. yeah. is Grant Morrison. So it was interesting to see that. I I really do think, in the notes, I shriek about how this book is a giant Silver Age circle jerk, and I stand by that statement. Because, <laughs> sure. And, that's, sure. and that's not just this book. Like, DC has a real thing where they keep, at, at least during this period of time, they really hyper-focused on these Silver Age heroes or um, like hearkening back to these things that happened with with Infinite Crisis. Like the Infinite Crisis event in the 80s was DC saying, hey, we tried this multiverse thing, but now it's confusing. So we're going to compress everything into a single timeline. Mm-hmm. And so Final Crisis happening 25 years later, what, 30 years later, is them saying, never mind, we're going back to the multiverse. So, so them, t- and I know there's zero hour and all of that, whatever. So the, them taking Barry Allen, the flash, the second flash as kind of the parallel mirror connecting those two events where he died in infinite crisis and nobody ever got over it. And it shaped the whole like flash family narrative from that point on. And then having him reappear in final crisis I thought those moments where he was interacting with other like flash people was the part that resonated the most with me because it felt the most grounded. Like this book was all over the place, but whenever the flashes were together, it felt like that was supposed to be the through line. And I never quite felt that it was the through line that it was made out to be with the emotional weight that it had. Hmm. Yeah. So that, that for me was interesting. I, I really liked what they did with Tattoo Man. Tattoo Man mm-hmm. is a uh, supervillain who is covered in tattoos, and the tattoos can like come to life essentially as like 
force manipulations, if, if you will. Like if he's sure. got a dragon mm-hmm. tattoo, the dragon will pop off of his skin and be able to attack things. Right. So honestly, tattoo, super cool fucking power, if you ask me. But you know, whatever. Yeah, and so so tat- <laughs> tattoo man has this really nice arc where he becomes a hero, and I thought that would have been a really solid like emotional center for this book but it was only like a piece of what was happening and Mm -hmm. i get that in a multiverse shattering event there's more than one person who can be the narrative center but i do feel like (laughs) having a narrative center would have helped this book be more coherent sure 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 and again i understand that the coherency is not the point but i still hate it (laughs) yeah <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I thought that storyline was funny, if only because we got to see Green Arrow and Black Canary, who I I think I described uh, Canary and Green Arrow being the horny mom and dad who have to run yes. the Justice League yes. headquarters and yes. being pissed off about everything. Yeah. Probably was yes. some of the the like really funnest, like the most fun moments in this entire story of them just being like, "Fuck, everything's on fire, and we can't have sex. Yep. What the fuck?" And, and yep. Oliver Queen just being <laughs> pissed about everything, and Canary just being like, "We have responsibility." Oliver <laughs> it was great right yeah Green Arrow is is really such a treasure yes yeah yeah uh, especially when they remember his grumpy liberal roots right right <laughs> yeah there's a moment where he's talking about you know when because Darkseid's using the anti-life equation to take over the, the humanity and uh Green Arrow says something to the effect of like once he's fascist takes over prove I was right about everything right he's still that like grumpy <laughs> But Green Arrow is yeah. such a funny character to me because I always I, I'm I'm tainted by the television show. So like whenever I read oh, this okay. kind of like kind of bubbly, fun uh, Oliver yeah. Queen, I'm like, oh man, this is such a better character. <laughs> well, because yeah. in oh, yeah. Arrow they tried to do Batman without using Batman. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Sure. Sorry, so, I completely yeah. interrupted you, Paul. Go ahead. Um, I just want to say, you know, Kara, thank you for pointing out uh, the positives in this book. And I get for me it does come down to particular moments. Because again, narratively, I will agree it is a mess, and Morrison's attempt to recreate the feeling of time collapsing doesn't always land. I think it's an interesting experiment, um, and I don't think the book is well served by being presented as a crossover event. I don't think any of the lead up, uh, countdown, or any of those things did this book any favors. Sure. And I don't think, I think it's very funny that Morrison decides about halfway through the book, you know what, what's more interesting than a New God story? A story about the monitors being corrupted by narrative, and there's this blood-sucking monitor who's basically a metaphor for uh, editors ripping off creators. <laughs> like, that's the story I'm going to tell. Like, that becomes the story at the end, yeah. which is hilarious to me. I also will say that this collection doesn't do a good job of putting that in there, because those Superman issues were coming out later uh, in the story. Uh, consecutively with the the main story, so the second issue of the Superman Beyond story should come. You should be read that right before the last issue of Final Crisis. Mm-hmm. That's not the way it's organized. This collection, yeah. minor gripe. Um, but as I was going to say, I think the moments really click. Uh, I love Grant Morrison's attempt to make a sort of meta narrative meditation on what it means to be a superhero crossover event. At the same time, you do have Frankenstein riding a motorcycle in an awesome like double page spread. Yeah. And then you have Superman of you know going off planet, and then you have Batman shooting Darkseid with a magic time traveling bullet. Mm. How can I love a comic where that happens? Right. Like I have to love right. that, you know. And as I said, I think if you don't know Darkseid or the New Gods, I think it might be a confusing introduction. But Darkseid's presence in this book does feel very threatening. He actually feels like a supervillain, 
in a more interesting supervillain than he usually is presented. You know, there's that moment in the last issue when Superman is holding Batman's like smoking corpse mm-hmm. and he's confronting Darkseid. And Darkseid says, what will you do when your friends, your enemies, your lover are all Darkseid? When there is one body, one mind, one will, one life that is Darkseid. Will you be the enemy of all existence then? What irony will that be, son of Krypton? That is the kind of stuff I want from a Graham Morrison yeah. comic. That's such a good. That was moment. a really powerful. No. Honestly, like it's so weird because you're you're totally right. Like there are moments in this book where I was like, "Cool, this is fucking comic books. This mm-hmm. is what I want." That is exactly one of those moments. Um, I also thought that Batman outsmarting the machine thing was actually kind of cool. I'll say what you will about how yes. like ridiculous that was. I actually liked the oh. fighting of the mind thing that happened. But yeah, the, like, moments like that kick ass in this run. Yeah, you have to remember that Grant Morrison is also writing Batman at the same time. Yeah. So. You know, that is a crossover to the main Batman series where Bat- where Morrison is examining Batman's psyche. And the, the short version of that storyline is they're attempting to make a clone Batman army and Batman weaponizes his traumatic memories to short circuit it. <laughs> That's pretty fucking cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean. If a little glorifying <laughs> of the trauma. Look, I dredged up two more things that I liked. How's that? Okay. 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 Cool. Okay. Um superior lex luthor content okay hundred percent yes yeah every time lex luthor opened his mouth i was like why are you not the center of this story (laughs) (laughs) which i'm sure is exactly what lex luthor would also want right yes yeah (laughs) um but it was just like pitch perfect lex luthor being like fine if i have to i'll save the day i get the credit for this superman how does it feel that that i'm out heroing you another perfect (laughs) moment at the end of that's the story yeah look i'm 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 watching the new ducktail series on disney plus and it was like watching flint heart glom gold yelling at scrooge mcduck being like haha i'm the better rich scotsman (laughs) (laughs) so quality um i also thought that you know i was saying like oh man mike it's it makes total sense that you have no idea what's going on because this is like grant morrison dredging the depths of z-list characters to be like look who my favorite is but yeah yeah such fascinating use of the ray the ray is like i would put him at c-list like c-list justice league the ray is a character who can turn himself into generally like a beam of light Mm -hmm. and in final crisis he's like actually i can manifest as any kind of wavelength of course i can be your teleportation beam and i'm like rad (laughs) this is why (laughs) do that grant morrison was the natural writer for new x-men when he was like hey guess what secondary mutations just get clever with it and then he fucking left and that's been the basis of x-men since he left the the brand like come on their mind is is incredible and yeah yeah i thought that that was very well done when when can I talk about the things I had problems with? <laughs> <laughs> Let's, what, we, yeah, go ahead, Paul. Go yeah, ahead. Wait, what, what, yeah, one more point I want to make. Go, um, again, I have to say, there we're only scratching the surface. Like Mike and I both have been saying, there's so many great moments in this book, and I think it works better as a collection of interesting ideas and moments rather than a cohesive story. So your mileage may vary if what depending on what you want from a comic book. So... There are things that, for me, like I said, hit very emotionally hard. Mike, you talked about Dan Turpin, the character that Darkseid takes over. Mm-hmm. If you've read Kirby's uh, Fourth World, the New God series, Dan Turpin is a detective who stands up against Orion and Calabac when they're having a knockdown, dragout fight in the middle of a city. 
Dan Turpin is the ultimate example of humanity standing up against the gods, the new gods. So him being taken over for dark side is a huge emotional moment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If you don't know that, it just seems like a random dude. So I can understand the frustration of this book. So yeah, I, I think my my final point, my final crisis, final thought huh. uh, in terms of what I like is those moments where you do have these big ideas playing out on a grand scale. We didn't even mention the fact that the Ray uses his power to draw a magic sigil on the face of the earth to save it. You know, there's so much, <laughs> yeah. there's so much going on that it's overwhelming. But once you kind of like let yourself be taken by those moments, it's a very enjoyable read. Yeah. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Now we can criticize. I, it. No, I, I will okay. say I, I slipped up <laughs> earlier before. I sh- I I misused uh, Morrison's pronouns. I should have said they instead of sure. as he earlier. So that's a mistake on my part. I just want to call that out here. Uh, but Kara, yeah, let's let's dig in. I have one massive point that I want to make about my biggest yes. problem with the entire book. Mm-hmm. Go, and it's not even a a comic book thing. It is the oh, fucking is lettering in this book. Really atrocious. This is the worst lettered structured book I've ever read in my life. This is a 400 page book. This is a 400 page book. And I'm so, you know, people work very hard on comics and I don't want to disparage anybody, but I've never in my life had to reread so many pages to understand the order of everything because I like, I, for the most part felt like I got the gist of a page and then I'd go Mm. back and then I'd see that the letters were guiding my eyes back up to the panel that I was just at. And I went, Whoa, was I supposed to read it in that order? And there Mm. were, there was, this wasn't just like one off because you get this every once in a while where there's just like page layouts tough and lettering can be tough. And I get it. Numerous pages in numerous issues. I I could have, like I had to read this book in three sittings. It wasn't because the book was long. It was because the lettering made me reread pages multiple times to make sure that I understood the context on things. How do you approve a page that looks like this? I could could literally go through the the Hoopla digital version that I read and screen cap dozens of pages where that was a problem. And I just, shame on DC for proofing this and saying that this was good. (laughs) I honest to God think this is one of the worst lettered books I've ever read. In just in terms of layout and structure. And I can't sure. get over how frustrating that was to read a book where I'm kind of out of context of the story and then sure. thinking I'm misinterpreting what's going on because the lettering's bad. Like unforgivable in a lot of ways. It's I can't See, believe it. Yeah. I had a couple pages where I thought that, but I just chalked it up to nothing matters. This narrative isn't going to be coherent anyways. I'm just going to let <laughs> okay, it okay, wash okay, over sure. me okay. as much as possible. Okay. This is intentional. It's all a terrible, terrible intention. Um, look, so thinking about this book and, and revisiting it, I realized that a lot of my problems with this are the same problems that the Star Wars prequels had. Mm-hmm. You have your creator who had a very specific vision and wanted to do a lot of stuff, and it's very visually cluttered, and nobody said, should we do that thing? (laughs) (laughs) Like, it didn't feel like there was an editor saying, maybe this should be more understandable. Like, there was just, it it felt like it could have benefited from somebody else being like, do you need a panel that's just for a Captain Carrot cameo. Is that furthering the yes, narrative? of course you do. Of course. Of course. Of course. I was okay, not mad about so, that. Look, my my biggest problems with this book, revisiting it, accepting that Grant Morrison was going for a time is collapsing, so there isn't going to be like a chronology. Accepting mm-hmm. that, my major problems with this book are 
the fact that a lot of the interesting things that seem to have happened happened off panel and were immediately explained in a caption. Mm-hmm. That was frustrating for me as a reader because they would say, and then this cool thing happened, like a boom tube appears, but you just see the word boom. And then on the next page, it's like, and a boom tube appeared and we got teleported. <laughs> and I'm like, why the fuck wouldn't you show that? <laughs> and and sure, stuff like right. there's the two page spread buildup for like Superman coming back to that present moment on that specific earth and everyone starting to do the look up in the sky dialogue. And then you turn the page off of this double page spread. That's all built up to Superman reappearing and the panel that shows Superman first. It's, it's not even a half page panel. It's like a, quarter page panel and superman is shown like in profile moving parallel to the ground like there's nothing dynamic happening in the panel Mm. it's Mm. like that kind of buildup i would have expected a full page like that's what you need a full page spread you want everyone looking up at the sky and all of a sudden all the supermen burst back into reality as like a single or double page spread sure and that is not what happened and so i was like there felt like some wasted moments like that My other major critique, now that, again, I'm older and wiser and know how to talk about these things, this book treats women like trash. Mm. Like, Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. many Mm. butt shots, crotch shots, calling each other sluts. Wonder Woman has, like, no speaking lines and is, like, very early on gets turned into an evil female fury with, like, this weird, ugly dog mask. And they never talk about how it happened. They don't show her struggling to overcome this programming it's just all of a sudden she's bad now we gave her a whip isn't she hot and like the character of mary marvel mike this was like a whole thing where i was like oh is mike gonna know what's going on with the marvels okay so So, like i kind of did i I knew that they all can say like a special word and then they turn into a powerful being because i know that there's like a family of them but i was like sure why is this one r-rated and why is she so like want to kill everybody with sex so (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so there's this whole buildup where they're like, Mary Marvel is done being like the innocent golden girl. Now she's bad. And you find out in Final Crisis that it's because she's been possessed by Granny Goodness, who is like the bad lady in Apocalypse. Right. But- she was she was possessed by Desaad, who was the dark side's like right hand man who you know gets his jollies from torturing oh, right, people right uh, the alpha, yeah, i see yeah, yeah. the alpha yeah. lantern was yep. possessed by granny right, okay right, right, see yeah. i i just read it and i'm confused by it so so but mary marvel's whole thing like it really felt like they just like the way that they portrayed her i get that they were trying to be like she's been possessed by a gross old man god but they like shaved her head in a weird way and put her in leather and made her like rub her crotch over Captain Marvel Jr. in a way that's like your spine doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. And it just the whole thing was super gross. And I was like, really? Like she calls Supergirl a slut. And then immediately afterwards, one of the bad guys says like a rape joke about how Luthor can have Supergirl first. And I'm just like, really? Yeah. Like the only women in this book who seemed to have a voice at all were black canary. And you Mm -hmm. see her in the context of having sex with, or being in love with Oliver queen, Mm -hmm. um, the flash wives, which you see in context of them being their wives and being saved by their magical flash kisses Mm -hmm. and (laughs) Renee Montoya, Mm -hmm. who's a lesbian. (laughs) So like, 
it seems like being a lesbian is the only superpower worth having in the DC universe at this time, because then they don't objectify you except wait, they do because Batwoman was also a female fury and she doesn't say anything. And the one time you really like see her, she's got her like pony dogs reins in her teeth. And I'm like, first of all, you're going to lose a cap that way. And second of all, (laughs) what the fuck? (laughs) So, yeah, and I, 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 I think it, we'll have to do a link to the previous episode where Kara and I talked about Graham Morrison because you brought up a lot of these same criticisms with their other work, which was stuff I was kind of blind to, mm. and I appreciate that because I rereading it, that stuff is way cringier, edgelord than I realized at the time when it first came yeah. out. Um, you know, and you can kind of attempt to hand wave it by saying, "Yes, Mary Marvel was taken over by Desaad, this creepy old guy," or uh, you know, Morrison simply trying to make the the villains seem even worse by making having these making them say these comments or these rape jokes. None of that lands. No. It, it doesn't has not aged well. It, it wasn't it didn't age well when it came out and has gotten even worse since. So yeah, I, I cannot I agree with all those criticisms. Yeah, yeah. I was just like, oh my god, so many butts, <laughs> so many butts. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of butts. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, uh, I have I still have a lot of questions about like. What were yeah, like? What were the significance of the tiger people? I missed all that. <laughs> okay, um, and so, why was Dark Side Sun? Marvels. Thought, okay, go ahead, go ahead. So, so Tawny, the good Tiger Man, is a companion to the Marvel Gang, which mm-hmm. were brought over from Fawcett Comics. They, you know, how like Ca- uh, Captain Marvel, the DC version, not the Marvel version. Captain Marvel was with Superman in the out of space out of time yeah. with all the other supermen and yes. he was like oh he's from a purer world i was like that's Fawcett comics ah uh, okay okay because <laughs> dc bought Fawcett comics who was doing all the marvel stuff and then dc's like you're in our world now so like you see captain marvel in the context of being part of that like Fawcett comics world but then in like the main narrative of final crisis happening on the earth with all the heroes you see captain marvel jr and Mary Marvel being possessed, and then Tawny the Tiger, who mentions that he has to get his jetpack out of storage, which mm-hmm. like yes. cool. Mm-hmm. Then show him using the jetpack. Like, <laughs> yeah. what right. the fuck? Yeah. So um, they were doing a thing where like Calabac, one of Darkseid's sons, like what they they like made a throwaway comment that the apocalypse bad guys were making human animal hybrids they said that in a throwaway yeah. one panel and mm-hmm. then 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 like several issues later calabac is like a tiger man with an army of tiger men yeah. and that's who's fighting okay I, yeah. I, I did kind of follow that mm-hmm. i just felt like there was some significance that i wasn't getting but if it was just that that throwaway line becoming the later beat that that makes sense i guess i think I think the idea is that if you read Jack Kirby's Commandy, there's a like a clan of tiger people, oh. for lack of a better word, uh, t- talking tigers. And I think the implication is that uh, all of the experiments that the new gods are doing on animals are taking place in Command D, the bunker, and that becomes Commandy's world I see. in I, the future. I, I so Morrison's kind of collapsing that. Yeah, I see. I got that joke. Very okay. belatedly, only on this second read through, and I was like, "Come oh, really? on!" Um, <laughs> well, I mean, that's in the Kirby comic. I mean, Kirby made that joke, so blame yeah, blame yeah. Jack. Um, <laughs> Damn it, Jack. Well, I guess. Do you guys have any any final any final points about this? I, I like again. I have other questions, but like, yeah, maybe we could talk about it after. But I, I just want to like, I do want to say like, I'm glad that I read this. Like, I finally get some of the like 
bigger significant things that I think are kind of a, a, like alluded to in other comics that I read in DC every once in a while. I know that we it's been quite a long time since Final Crisis and um, we're in a much different continuity, but I still feel like there are remnants of this um, that still play through if maybe that's just DC comics in general, but like uh, I still feel like Morrison's impact is there. Obviously, people want them to come back yeah. and write more comics. Everyone's always very excited when Morrison's on a comic. So, like, yes. uh, I think people really still resonate with their writing. But, yeah, this I'm glad to have at least experienced this. You know, I feel like every time I pick up a DC event, I go, man, this is so different compared to Marvel events. Um, mm-hmm. I can understand the appeal. I just don't know if they always work for me. Um, so I guess that's, like, my sure. final thought here. Kara, what, what, do you have any final thoughts here? DC is never going to let go of their past. They can reboot as many times as they want, but they can't help themselves. That's why this whole thing was a Silver Age explosion and why so many of like the key things that happened were hearkening back to Infinite Crisis from the 80s. Barry mm-hmm. Allen the Flash coming back. Uh, Superman holding Batman's charred <laughs> body is like... One of the most iconic images of Infinite Crisis riffed on where he's holding dead Supergirl. Right, right. Uh, So like stuff like that, like DC just won't let it go. (laughs) Like that's why you have to like know so much going in because how else are you going to be like, oh, I guess you're going to highlight Aquaman for a panel and then never show him again because I'm supposed to be excited that Aquaman is back. Was he gone? Why is he here? Why are you pointing out that he's back in one panel? I'm so confused. <laughs> um, sure. Look, so overall, my crit- my critique of this is I thought there were some weird uh, art choices being made to carry the narrative through. Uh, do not like how the female characters were portrayed. And again, I cannot separate this book from the context of all the other books leading up to it. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, I did think the books leading up to it were better. And maybe that's just because they were trying to do less or they had more space. Like I really liked the count. I remember really liking the countdown comic book series, Mm -hmm. which was 52 weekly issues Mm -hmm. of what was like leading up to this event. I remember really liking that Uh, when it was coming out. I liked the, crime bible miniseries like you kept hearing about this crime bible in this final crisis and they never really go into it but there was like a whole lead up about that where renee montoya as the question was exploring this like evil bible cult and like that shit was awesome and then they like sort of mention it but not really get into it and it's like if you didn't read that miniseries do you know what they're talking about I completely forgot that 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 was in the book. So yeah, thank you for reminding me of what I thought was a cool little bit. Um, (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) So like, there's all the, like, I felt like it was just so much build up and then disappoint for me. Mm. Gotcha. Um, But yeah, I, I mean, it is what it is. There were some very nice moments where if, again, you were a huge DC nerd, like maybe you were like me and you really liked that moment where, Wonder Woman at the start before she gets evil yells hola while she punches somebody and you're like that's Spanish hello but that's also like her battle cry from the 40s that William Moulton Marston put in like all of his scripts (laughs) and if you know that you're like oh she said the thing (laughs) 
So like there were some cute moments like that, but now that I'm more about like, hey, let's make sure that like somebody can pick up a comic book and not immediately wonder why anybody reads comic books ever. <laughs> like not not like every book has to be like a Marvel Now book, but there should be like a baseline of coherency in these things. Sure. sure. And I felt like things like Superman punching a space vampire should have been awesome. But for me, I was just confused and bored. I was like, why this should be cooler. Why is this not cooler? Okay. okay. Maybe I just want too much from my books. I, I mean, again, there, there, maybe a Grant Morrison part three is coming, but we can get into <laughs> sure. it. Yeah. Uh, Paul, okay. I, as the person who was kind of driving this whole thing, uh, what are your final thoughts sure. on here before we wrap up the episode? Uh, I will say this. I, 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 I think Final Crisis, I enjoy rereading it. I'm glad I took time to reread it and talk, talk about it with you you both today. Uh, it's an interesting experiment. Um, like I said, it is a mess, but I'd rather have an interesting mess rather than a, a safe, uh, I don't know, what's the opposite of a mess? Something safe. Marvel's right? Axis. Um, I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> right, yeah. I, I, think, I think Morrison tries a lot. I do know if you read about the history of this book, uh, their initial pitch was that after the new gods died, the core Justice League members of the DC universe would become the new new gods. Mm. Obviously, DC didn't do that. So I think there's a lot of attempts to reconfigure a bigger idea into something more manageable. All that being said, I, I really like it as a new god story. I think the fact you do have Darkseid essentially winning at the end and then Superman defeating him by singing a song that's crazy like that's the kind of stuff i want from a comic book yeah. okay and I, then you, you <laughs> let it finish let it finish and you know and in dark side killing orion by shooting a bullet backwards through time because mm-hmm. it travels through the, the flashes like slipstream all that stuff there are so many amazing over-the-top ridiculous comic booky moments that work for me i'm willing to sort of overlook the sort of messiness of the of the narrative to just enjoy those moments that spoke to me when I read it as a fan coming back to DC for a long time, mm-hmm. uh, from a, after a long time gone. And now even more after reading more of Morrison stuff, they hit even harder for me. So I, I enjoy it. I celebrate its messiness uh, at the same time. I celebrate its, its successes. Gotcha. Gotcha. I have a nitpick and a comment. <laughs> sure. <Okay. laughs> my, my nitpick from what Paul just said is talking about the, the Superman using a song to, defeat yes. dark side uh-huh. um that that is going back to my point of good ideas bad execution like that if that was supposed to be a pivotal moment why was it a regular size panel why wasn't it a full yeah, page yeah. of the music weaving through everything and disassembling things and we only got so many like pages full, in this huge comic I, book. yeah but that's but that's yeah. what i'm saying like things that felt important were not given the visual impact sure. of saying this sure. is an important moment and maybe the point was that all of the moments were important but it, there were moments like that where i was like i this feels like it should be a splash page yeah my comment based on what paul said about like maybe he liked more chaos i figured it out in the dc universe you're Hawk and I'm Dove. You're serving the agents oh. of chaos and I'm serving the agents of order. Just give me a fucking coherent narrative, damn it. And I'm yeah, Jimmy true. Olsen. There um, there you go. So I think that's, this is where we're going to wrap things up. Um, I'm, again, very glad that I read this. Very glad to get deeper into the mind of um, Grant Morrison and to understand Paul and Kara a little bit better. I think I understand both of you 
better now having read this. We are um, the opposite nice. person. Right. And that's, <laughs> yes. you know what? And yes. that's totally fine. I'm glad to have you both um, as friends and folks on the podcast. So yeah, I guess everybody at home, really curious to know what you think about Final Crisis, because apparently this is a very <laughs> divisive book. Yes. So sh- shoot us an email, ircpodcast at gmail.com. Um, next week's episode is going to be me and Nick and Renee. We're going to be just talking about comics. We're going to experiment with a new show format where we kind of just sit and talk about comics for the full episode. It's going to be really interesting. Um, I hope you guys check it out next week. Come listen live on Discord. But until then, uh, you can follow us all on Twitter. You can follow Kara at Kara S. Sam. You can follow Paul at Oh Hi Pauly. You can follow me at Mike Rappin. And you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram and on our brand new TikTok at IRCB Podcast. Where I'm, I'm on TikTok, I'm trying to post clips from the show. It's kind of fun. Um, people seem to like it, at least. Unfortunately, I'm legally too old to download TikTok, ah. so I guess I'll never uh, know. That's all right. <laughs> This episode first aired on Patreon and is possible because of our wonderful Patreon supporters. Join today for exclusive series like the IRCB Movie Club, Saga of Saga, and so much more. You can do that over at patreon.com slash Podcast. If if you haven't already, please take a minute to rate and review the show. I think five stars is a fair rating. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It honestly helps to spread the word about the show and spread the word about IRCB. You can join our IRCB Discord community to chat, comics, and more, and listen to our episodes live as we record. And we say listen, but you can also, like, chat us in the chat box while you're listening. That's true. That's true. Which we will respond to you while that's happening. Uh, You can check that link in our show notes, and it would help us a lot if you tell your friends or your local comic shop about the show. Infinity Shred is the best band in the universe. They do all of our music, and we can't thank them enough for that. Uh, Xander is a cool guy who makes us sound even cooler every week. Thanks to him, you get to hear our wonderful voices every week. I want to say thank you to Paul and Kara for joining me on this episode. Thank you to Brian and Danny for hanging out with us in the chat. Everyone out there who listens to the show and interacts with us and all of our Patreon supporters, thank you so much. Until next time, comics are good, and so are you. Comics are good.